the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining me. You can follow the show at danproftshow.com. That's where uh, you'll also find podcasts of previous shows. Uh, podcasts also available on iTunes and Spotify, on social media at Dan Proft Show on Facebook and Twitter, as well as at Proft Dan on Instagram. All right, that rounds that up. Uh, rounding up uh, his uh, briefing on Tuesday evening, uh, excuse me, on Monday evening, Monday evening, President Trump uh, was asked about the reopening, and uh, he. Uh, Went down a path I, I wish he wouldn't have gone down in terms of um, who has the power to reopen. Here's a simple rule of thumb. Maybe, maybe Mike Pence could put it on a laminate card. Guidelines in, guidelines out. The CDC, uh, well, the Trump administration in consultation with the CDC, promulgated guidelines for what ultimately became the shutdown in most of the nation. They can promulgate, uh, promulgate guidelines for states reopening, and with every state perhaps doing it a little bit differently. The gist of the guidelines have been followed in most places, not exactly in the same ways, but generally speaking, the same direction. And they can provide a model for states to reopen even as you have Andrew Cuomo and New England governors putting together a working group to plot a plan for reopening their states. And the same thing is happening with Western governors. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott expected to issue an executive order on the path to reopening in Texas. And business groups in Wisconsin pushing Governor Tony Evers, now that they've got the election behind them, to reopen Uh, to begin reopening the Badger State once his shelter-in-place order expires on April 24th. You don't need to go down this road that President Trump went down, particularly since it's a dead end for him. He doesn't have the power he says he has. He says he has. The President of the United States has the authority to do what the President has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The President of the United States calls the shots. If we weren't here for the states, you would have had a problem in this country like you've never seen before. We were here to back them up, and we we more than backed them up. We did a job that nobody ever thought was possible. It's a decision for the president of the United States. Now, with that being said, we're going to work with the states because it's very important. Yeah, work with the states, right. It, It was a decision to provide support to the states, and it would be a decision to provide support to the states as they reopen. But President Trump made it clear when he was peppered relentlessly about uh, states that did not have shelter in place orders. Why don't you tell uh, DeSantis to issue a 
a shelter in place? Or have you talked to the governors in Nebraska and Iowa, the Dakotas, elsewhere, that don't have shelter in place orders? Why don't you tell them to have shelter in place orders? And what would Trump respond with? A dissertation on federalism. These governors know what they're doing. They're doing well. There's not a lot of cases in most of these states that are sparsely populated. And so uh, I don't feel the need to, to to try to impose my will. Why not take that same attitude with respect to the reopening? What's more effective, suggesting that you're the sovereign, like you're some character in a a uh, Thomas Hobbes uh, tract on social on social contract theory, or is it to say? Uh, here are the guidelines we've come up with with uh, for sensible reopening in consultation with uh, my top uh, economic advisors like Larry Kudlow, my top infectious disease experts like Burks and Fauci. Here's what we're suggesting. So you can use this as a blueprint, tweak it as you see fit with respect to the particular unique uh, aspects of your state and have at it. Let's get open. Every governor has an incentive to reopen their state, particularly when other governors are doing it, because people want to work. I don't care if you're a business in a blue state or a red state. You want to be open. You want to be making money. You want to be making a living. So what provides more pressure? Trump declaring himself, again, the sovereign, having absolute authority over this decision to direct states to reopen, which he does not have. He does not have that constitutional power. Or the peer pressure that led to all the dominoes to fall that would uh, present that same incentive for them to to stand themselves up again. It's just so unnecessary. And of course, because of what you just heard him say, then the press asked him another 11 times on the topic to see if he would back down or double down, uh, knowing him as we all do after three years, what did he do? Double down. So if, if some states refuse to reopen and you order them to, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution says all powers that don't reside in the president of the Congress reside in the states. How do you overcome that? Well, if some states refuse to open, I would be I would like to see that person run for election. Uh, they're going to open. They're going to all open. The ballot box. I, I think that's something that's not going to happen. They want to open. They have to open. They have to get open. Every one of those states, the people want to go and they want to. Now, some will be are in a different situation. You have. I won't name states now, but I will over the next two or three days. I'm going to be very specific. But you have some states where this is not the kind of a problem that it is in New York or Louisiana or Michigan or other places that got hit very hard. Illinois got hit very hard. Uh, but all states want to open, and they want to open as soon as possible. But they want to open safely, and so do I. Okay, that's fine. He danced around the question of if a state said we're not going to reopen on May 1, would you try to force them to? And he danced around it. This is what they should do. There'll be pressure on them uh, from the populace to reopen. Great. Why don't you leave it there rather than adding this? When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Your authority is total. It's total. It's total. And Mike Pence, the vice president, was there, asked the question to back the president's play, which he dutifully did. Well, make no mistake about it. In the long history of this country, the authority of the president of the United States during national emergencies is unquestionably plenary. Well, um, uh, of course, that sent the D.C. press corps uh, trying to locate dictionary.com so they could find out what the meaning of the word plenary was and uh, how to use it in a sentence. But um, uh, it's not. It's not. 
It, there's a very different thing when it comes to uh, an enumerated power the federal government does have, Section 1, uh, excuse me, Article 1, Section 8, the 30 enumerated powers, and then, as was mentioned by one reporter, the 10th Amendment, those not enumerated, reside with the state. Um, very different with respect to controlling commerce across state lines, interstate commerce, you know. Uh, it can, however, force individuals and business to engage in business in the first place. Sort of, it's, it's a facsimile of forcing you to open. This was in the NFIB versus Sibelius case regarding Obamacare. Um, and while you could potentially make out a claim that would pass a summary judgment motion in federal court, why would you want to? You don't have that authority. It is not an enumerated power. It does not reside with the executive. Uh, in fact, states have vast police power when it comes to matters like this. But it just doesn't make any sense politically. It's not the most effective path. And it turns out to be a political fight that you don't actually want to have, right? We uh, mentioned this yesterday. I'll mention it again. Thinking about the governors in states that Trump needs to win in November and where they find themselves in terms of their approval pre-pandemic versus today. Tony Evers in Wisconsin is plus 24. His approval rating is 72 percent, even after this uh, primary debacle last week. Cuomo. Plus 32 percent pre-pandemic to present, 79 percent approval rating. Newsom in California, plus 41 percent, 83 percent approval rating at present. John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, plus 14 percent, almost a 70 percent approval rating. Even Gretchen Whitmer, <laughs> with the authoritarian measure that she announced over the weekend, she has seen her approval rating increase by 24 points to 66 percent. So you want to pick local fights with popular governors. Why? Why not just manage the federal portion of the response like you have with respect to the shutdown and the resources? Uh, don't declare yourself something you're not. You're not the sole sovereign. You don't have this power. Uh, you talked about I have it, but I may not need to use it. Continue to show restraint in using the powers that you do have and uh, allow the pressure of the populace to want to resume something akin to normal life, reopen their businesses, rejoin the workforce, uh, renew their access to entertainment venues and whatever the new guidelines will be for the foreseeable future. Let that play itself out. It is an overreach and a politically dumb fight to pick. This is Dan Proctor. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I just want to go to this graph we mentioned yesterday and briefly. Scott Granis, who's a blogger over at uh, Califia Pundit, he's a former chief economist for a global portfolio management operation. He uh, charted uh, private sector versus public sector job loss for the last 20 years. Of course, uh, big swings in private sector unemployment during periods like, say, the Great Recession, 2008 to the bottom of it in 2010. 
And then, of course, the last uh, three weeks of 2020, where it's been reported almost 17 million Americans are first-time unemployment filers. Uh, that number of truly unemployed Americans probably more in the neighborhood of 25 million in the last three weeks. And uh, public sector jobs, no movement. They've ticked up, actually, the beginning of the year. They're sort of in stasis. Well, the question becomes, are we going to return to capitalism or are we going to return to feudalism? Because what the direction we're headed, in particular states like Illinois are headed to feudalism. Well, the good news is, at least at the uh, macro level, we're seeing some bears return to being bulls. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, in particular, yesterday, which may have uh, resulted in some um, palliative effect on the market uh, drop yesterday. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and small business owner, proprietor of Brands in Palatine, Illinois. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, what about uh, public sector versus private sector? It seems to me this is a a conversation we should be having now, too, not just with respect to headcount, but with respect to the Fed propping up the muni bond market so that these reckless governments at every level can continue to borrow against tomorrow to pay for yesterday. Well, that's the, the point that when you uh, went on the, your spiel a second ago, which I agree with everything of it, that's the part that, that was missing now is the Fed coming in and buying muni bonds, which you said now. To me, that you know, when, when we set this whole thing up, if my memory from history class is good. It was, you know, the United the United States with a small federal government, and the states were in kind of a quasi cooperative and competitive state that they operated in. That's gone. I don't think now it's just this enormous federal government. And I think the belief in Illinois, and I think this has been a while, and and I think it's true now that the federal government doesn't is not going to let states go bankrupt. So they are emboldened and they spend and spend. The the, the problems before this happened, they were never going to meet all their financial obligations. They just can't. They got the, the uh, low rates gave them an opportunity to clean things up over the last 10 years since the great financial crisis. And not only have they not cleaned things up, they made things worse. I think their belief is that we live in a bailout world and they get bailed out or they just, or they just don't care. It's not their money. They just keep giving money away and spending, you know, just enormous amounts and they don't give a, give a damn. Well, right. I mean, it was, you know, we'll figure it out. Eh, yeah, it's just we'll, figure it out. we'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 again, too, I mean, the, there's been an argument made. Uh, uh, Vince Colber, who's on the board of Truth and Accounting, is businessman in Chicago and others have suggested that you should create a requirement for state and local support from the federal government, which is that uh, there's a provision written into federal bankruptcy code that allows states to reorganize so that they can get out from underneath unfunded health care and pension liabilities. It happened once before. I don't have my facts exactly straight, but I believe it was in the 30s. I believe it was Arkansas, um, where the federal government did allow states to restructure. And, and again, that could easily happen again. But I don't even think it's going to need to come to that. I don't even think we're the United States of America anymore. We're just America, and the federal government kind of holds the pressure. And one thing that, like, when this whole thing began, the the rate at which people looked to the government to be saved and the local governments look to the federal government to be saved so quickly. And I actually, I think that even in capitalism, the government can build bridges in a time like this to get from one side to the other. But 
just how everybody just accepted it so quickly bummed me out. You talked about the public sector not losing any jobs and the private sector losing at 25 million is a pretty good guess, I think. But, you know, we, we want some the risk takers, the company builders, and we're, we're moving to a point where that's becoming less and less attractive if, if you know, these public sector jobs keep growing and keep, I mean, talk about job security, right? What's your, uh, yesterday was reported by Mnuchin and Trump. They've uh, put about $200 billion out the door through the payroll protection loan, forgivable loan program. And, of course, they're trying to get another $250 billion from Congress into that program. Uh, does that sound like uh, it will have some uh, blunting effect on the depths of the unemployment, of the depths of the business bankruptcies, uh, if we do move to start reopening the economy uh, by it, May 1? Yeah, it has to happen rather quickly. And I think it, again, I, I am not a socialist, I'm a capitalist, but there's even times like, you know, in a war where people have to be drafted and give up their freedoms. If this situation was as serious as it was told to us, then these, and these restaurants had to close down. And again, I, I never believe 100% one way or the other. And I think anybody who does is highly suspect to me. But if that was really the case, and it seems like it was, then this is where the government should, set, should uh, step in and bridge the gap. And if they can push this out quickly, I think it's probably valuable and could could keep, you know, a lot of people from going under. Some of the bears that are turning bullish again, like Goldman Sachs yesterday. What's our understanding of that change in outlook? Well, it's similar to the outlook I had when I read it, too, is that I think it's difficult to argue that from a virus standpoint, we haven't turned a corner. And remember when we were we were talking about this at the beginning, we were supposed to flatten the curve, and that it's it's difficult to argue that that hasn't happened to at least some extent. We're also seeing places like Italy and Spain starting to reopen, but even more importantly, we're starting to see places that didn't take the same lockdown strategy having similar results to places that did take the lockdown strategy, like us. So, if we if we start to believe as each day passes on that we kick the door open in early part of May, then I'm, I'm still a bull on stocks as I have been. And uh, to me, it seems like it, it's going to take a lot of explaining to do for it to be late May and restaurants and things not open stage, particularly if Texas opens next week, like it's been rumored, and, and they're not having this huge apocalyptic run on hospitals. So I, I think no matter how much these guys want to play it as safe as possible, there'll be a public outcry. Uh, we've talked about precedent setting when it comes to the response. Mainly, it's been focused on the public health response and shutting down. And, and one of the responses being shutting down the economy, the social distancing, the uh, eulogy for the handshake and all these sorts of things, cultural things as well. What about uh, the precedent being set by the Fed? Uh, and one of the things that's different with the, the response here as compared to 2008 is you have the Fed's uh providing credit directly rather than through the banking system exclusively. I think it's a terrible, terrible precedent. After the great financial crisis, we had, you know, BOJ, um, some of the European central banks actually buying stocks of companies. And we, it seems funny in our country that it's like a point of pride. Oh, we, we don't buy stocks. Well, if you're buying, if you're buying corporate bonds, what, what really is the difference in my opinion? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a terrible precedent. And I think one thing that 
that with the Fed, and I, I'm not one of these big, huge Fed bashers. I believe the Fed should exist in a much simpler form than they do now. They, they are very good at taking three steps forward, and they're very bad at taking three steps back. So if this was – like everyone was like, well, the Fed, you know, the Fed's always there to, be, to bail everyone out. Well, this is the time period where we're shutting down the economy for four to six weeks. The Fed should be bailing people out. But the problem is, is they never know when – to, to take the punch bowl away. They, they're, they're very bad at it, and they're, and they're very bad at spotting inflation. They're using a you know, 25 years ago model of pricing out Wonder Bread to see if there's inflation anywhere, and they miss it when it comes in some glaring other areas. <laughs> Jim Urio, <laughs> CNBC contributor, owner of Brands in Palatine, Best Burger in Chicago. Thank you. Jim, thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. There was an exchange between CBS reporter Paula Reed and President Trump at his Monday night task force briefing that was particularly telling. This was after Paula Reed had gotten done questioning whether Tony Fauci was being held against his will and needed some sort of a rescue team scrambled. You got to listen for what she was saying because it's not a question. It's her perspective on the administration's response in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. So President Trump, knowing where she's going to go, dismisses her as disgraceful, which she was behaving in that fashion. Listen to this exchange because it's it's instructive. I saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds well, of thousands of lives by putting time that you bought. The argument is that you bought yourself some time. You didn't use it to prepare hospitals. You didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right you're now, so, you're, so, you're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. Let, let me just listen. Dead. I just went over it. I just went over it. No, forget uh, all. That's all you need is is that part right there. There are 20 million people unemployed. There are thousands of Americans dead. How is your response supposed to make people feel calm or safe uh, amid this unprecedented crisis? For more on uh, this topic, I'll let him have the first crack. He's more insightful than I. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Victor Davis Hanson, National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of The Case for Trump. BDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. I, I use that uh, clip in part because uh, I think it's it uh, dovetails nicely into your piece that I never thought I'd see a Victor Davis Hanson write a, a Winnie the Pooh piece. Uh, it uh, dovetails into the Eeyore syndrome that you write about uh, with respect to the press corps and, and sort of the American left. Yeah, I think the pessimist always wins because if you're at the Imperial College, you say 2.2 million people are going to die or. University of Washington, 200,000 are going to die, or Governor Mike DeWine and his advisors say 1.6 million people in four weeks will be infected in Ohio. Or here in California, 25.5 million people infected. That would mean about a million dead at the current. And then you're wrong. You just say, well, it's necessary to scare people to do what they didn't know was good for them, and now they did it, and I'm sorry for them, right? And if you're right, then you're a savior. Well, the optimist has the burden of, well, it's not going to be that bad. And then, then people say, well, it's only not that bad because we didn't listen to you and we took measures. And now maybe you're right, but you wouldn't have been right without us. So that psychology permeates this entire debate. And, and then the other thing is there's so many things that make this different than 2017. And it's not the virus. 
we may have 30 to 60 million people infected. We may lose 60,000 as we did that year, but the reaction is entirely different. If it was, if it was labeled influenza C and not coronavirus, or it didn't originate in China, or people did not, we weren't in an election year, or people did not see the virus as they did Robert Mueller, and impeachment is another way to abort the presidency, it would be different. But right now we're in a, a national panic and hysteria, and Donald Trump has a thin margin of error because he's got to get the country back to work or we're going to go into a, a depression. And yet when he does, everybody knows he's going to be blamed for every single death. He's got to give us optimism that the economy is going to bounce back, but not unrealistic optimism because people are so have been so terrified that even when we go back, they're not going to want to get on a flight or go to a restaurant for a while, and that's going to hurt us. So he's got a thin margin of error because he's got so many antagonists, the media, the Democratic Party, the progressives, the academics. It's a very tough task, and all of us wish that he would be more concise and shorter in his but he's human, and he's been subject to – I have never seen the media hatred of a president like this. It, it would also uh, help, the, it seems to me, if um, – although, he again, he's in a difficult spot. You know, he gives credibility to the, uh, the bad models and the uh, end-of-times predictions and saying it would have been these – he does the same thing. We, it would have been these numbers but for the measures that we took because he has to legitimize – the measures that he took and the the impact that it's had on the economy with the guidelines promulgated by the feds at the same time as he's trying to, you know, ultimately get uh, the popular support to get America back to work. Yes. And, he, and the irony is he gets blamed by the very people who do that every day as being a manipulator. He just gave us these bad uh, data. So then if we're not that bad, then he looks good. And that's exactly what they've been doing. But when he does it, he suffers that additional wage of manipulation. So he doesn't have a large uh, margin of error as he goes in. And we all know the subtext of this debate. The subtext of this debate is let's shut this economy down. Let's slow things down. Let's have a recession go into November. Let's blame Donald Trump for either killing people or ruining the economy. And therefore, we can resume power. I mean, that sounds cynical, but that's where we are right now. If this was not an election year, we'd have a very different dynamic going on. When we uh, come back with Victor Davis Hanson, more on the media, we're talking to Victor Davis Hanson, National Review columnist, senior fellow at Hoover Institution, back with more VDH right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Victor Davis Hanson, National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of The Case for Trump. And Avidia, just sticking with the D.C. press corps for a moment, I thought um, this uh, this was just remarkable. Uh, the Washington Post tweeting, Trump trails Fauci by 26 percent in public approval of coronavirus response. Like Trump and Tony Fauci are running for some office or they're, they have different models for the response rather than him being the infectious, than one being the infectious disease expert for the other. But it tells you everything about what their approach is to the task force and to the president's response. We're going to do everything we can to elevate Tony Fauci un, 
qualified elevation of Tony Fauci and unqualified uh, we're going uh, in an unqualified way. We're going to denigrate President Trump at every turn. Yeah, I don't think they understand that, although I have we all have respect for Tony. He has no responsibility in the sense that he can say something in February and say, don't panic. Or you can go back, you can go out to the theater, or there's very little chance that this is going to be an infection that's anything worse than the flu, which he all said. And then that's okay because he's not in a position of implementing policy. He only gives advice. And what he says on Monday, if you go back and look at what he said on Tuesday, it's not the same. The same is true of the WHO, the CDC, the FDA. And I mean, what they have told us on masks, on hydroxychloroquine, on modeling, on the FDA's uh, test kits, they've been wrong, wrong, wrong. And yet the next day, it's almost as if they're saying, I'd rather be wrong with a PhD and an MD than be right without one. I mean, they don't have any credibility and they have no responsibility. And so what the press does is they play a game where they want to suggest that Fauci is one of them, and he is, but they want him to either attack Trump or then sort of with a wink and nod say, you know, I can't say anything. I'm a captive, this guy. And that's what they do. So they get him on all the talk shows and he's 81 and they wear him down and that's just constant. So he finally says something. Well, I did say this for the president and then the president, you know, goes ballistic. And then the next day he, he kind of retracts it. And they say, wow, you're captive. And that game has been going on now from the very beginning of this crisis. And so if it was me and I'm, I have no responsibility either, but I would tell the president, take those press conferences, cut them down, your your participation, 25 minutes, Fauci's and Burke, 10 minutes, and then open it up so you and other talk show hosts, regional uh, reporters can just dial in or call in and emasculate that Washington press corps. Don't give them that monopoly of asking questions. Absolutely. And, and that's the only thing yeah. that I that's I think, the only thing I can see that would stop this pathological condition. Well, it's a, I think that's sound advice, particularly because he indulges them not just to ask whatever asinine questions they're going to ask, but to do it six and seven times, each one of them. Um, they, they don't, there's no intellectual curiosity, so the questions quickly devolve into the absurd. And what, what is the point of that, other than to, I guess, expose but, yeah, them, the expose them for who they the, are? Yeah, the point is to have a psychodrama. Yeah. So one of them can pose as the hero among his peers for 24 hours. Oh, I got to hear what I said the other day to the president. Uh, meanwhile, we're in a epidemic supposedly, and and we don't. It's just a distraction. And so Trump can get us out of this, and he can, he's going to have a lose lose situation. But still, if we get go back to work in the first week of May, and he he gives us encouragement, but not false assurances that the economy is going to immediately rebound because people have been so terrified they're not going to want to go to a restaurant they're not going to want to get on that flight they're not going to want to go on that cruise so it's going to take a long period to get back but we will get back if we we start in may and i think he can he can do it but ultimately it's the people get what they want and they have to be assured that this coronavirus at least in terms of dangers to their own person is like about a 2000 17 flu, where about one out of a thousand or three out of a thousand die. And I think the epidemiological studies that are coming out, the antibody studies, the anecdotal evidence 
that we're seeing when people are just tested in mass with antibodies, that's probably a good chance we're going to get something like the 2017 flu. And that was nothing to laugh at. It was 30 to 60 million infected, 60,000 mostly older people died. But we didn't shoot, we didn't destroy the economy in 2017. We endured it. And if we can get that mentality back, then we'll be okay. And uh, in a post-COVID-19 world, uh, you've given us some uh, handy-dandy lexicon so that we all know what we're saying when we uh, speak about it. Uh, this is a, this is a fun piece. You know, it reminds me of Lee Jessam's piece from a couple of months ago. I think it was in Quillette, Orwellian lexicon for academia. It was words like cisandrophobia, fear of heterosexual men. Um, your uh, <laughs> yours, uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, remembered for being a genius today, forgotten when being wrong yesterday. Um, FDA, an acronym that stands for let's not be hasty. Yeah, exactly. Boy, there's a, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of actually, um, um, postmortem and, um, perhaps unintentional, uh, silver linings that come out of this for the policymakers of the center, right? Like with respect to how the FDA operates, like with respect to the NIH's mission focus. Um, if, uh, if people, if people are on the ball, no. Yeah, I think we're going to say to ourselves, why in the world is the Center for Disease Control uh, worrying about uh, obesity right now when its its title is disease, infectious disease is what they're supposed to be doing. And I think, and I don't think anybody's going to say after this crisis, we need an, it doesn't matter that we have an open border or there's, right. there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with free unfettered travel all over the world. So I think we're going to get a, a realistic dose that you have to audit people who come into your country because Wuhan is closer, as I said, to Malibu than it is to other parts of uh, China. And that government knew that it was dangerous for citizens to leave Wuhan and go to other parts of China at a time when it was assured in the United States it was racist and xenophobic if it dared cut off Seven to 8,000 people flying into California every day and 15 to 20 in the United States. Well, it knew that, and that was a deliberate decision of the Chinese Communist government, and yet we don't talk about what they did, and to do so is considered to be racist. He that's is, where we are. He is VDH, National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of The Case for Trump. VDH, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We had to let VDH go, but I just have to review... A few more, uh, a few more entries into his uh, post-virus lexicon, uh, the definitions um, to make sure that you're using the phrases properly. For example, best and brightest well, from uh, the Camelot era now means being wrong on modeling, human infectiousness, test kit availability, travel bans, masks, and anti-malarial drugs without ever having to say you're sorry, the best and the brightest. <laughs> 
Big Pharma, leave. No, come home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. CNN, we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, drive away any viewing audience in order to assure the destruction of Trump. It's fair. Uh, how about Cuomo on Cuomo? Learn how the nation's most infected and lethal state proved to be its most successful in fighting the virus. That's perfect. Cuomo, another one. The state that had dealt with the largest infection and somehow Cuomo is the hero in the story. Uh, de Blasio, too. Uh, there's no recriminations about the pronouncements they made well into March about what they didn't do well into March. And then it was all, hey, what's the federal government doing for New York, uh, New York State, New York City? More from VDH denominator. That uh, means when in doubt, make it up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you heard what Anthony Fauci. I mentioned him. Remember for being a genius today. I've forgotten when being wrong yesterday. Masks uh, warned to save you or them or neither or both. Mm-hmm. Confused times. Modelers, certified geniuses who nobly erred so grievously only to force the public to do what they did not know was supposed to be good for them. <laughs> uh, Nancy Pelosi, first to warn of the existential viral danger by urging visits to Chinatown after the travel ban. Mm-hmm. All right, one more. Racism and xenophobia. Chinese institutionalizing of both provides proof of embracing neither. BDH, good stuff. Our post new our uh, new post virus lexicon from Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, in keeping with this uh, heady business, no safe spaces. That's the documentary put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that focuses on how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind to come up with a new post virus lexicon, particularly if you're on a college campus, uh, if you're posting on social media platforms, or if you're trying to make it in Hollywood, of course, No Safe Space is the number one political documentary of 2019 is a film that Hollywood does not want you to see. That's why it's not on Amazon or Hulu or Netflix, but it is on for a limited time only. No dot That's where you can watch it with your family during this downtime as we prepare to get back to business in hopefully the not too distant future. So uh, take advantage of this downtime. No Safe Spaces, available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. Podcasts are there as they are on iTunes and Spotify. On social media, at Dan Prof Show, on Facebook and Twitter, at Prof Dan on Instagram. And uh, 60 Minutes on Sunday night. Didn't get to this last night. 60 Minutes on Sunday night. Peter Navarro was uh, put on the hot seat uh, in a more... Um, refined esoteric way as is 60 minutes one but the hot seat nonetheless to uh, account for what uh, 60 minutes believe is uh, like the rest of the dc press corps was an insufficient uh, late response to the pandemic 
you say this could not have been anticipated. Intelligence agencies anticipated it. Other foreign countries. Well, other foreign countries anticipated it. I don't know what you mean. It's like if, if an intelligence agency said a global pandemic could happen, right? I mean, I'm sure they've been saying that for for decades, and nobody took them seriously. Why? Well, I mean, black swans are hard to sell, and this was the 500-year flood. I mean, look, this hasn't happened since 1917. But it's so happening today on your watch. You can line up every watch. president since then and say, why didn't you think this could happen again? But that's not productive right now. Have that episode, and I challenge you, show me the 60 Minutes episode a year ago, two years ago, or during the Obama administration, or during the Bush administration that said, hey, global pandemic's coming, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And by the way, we would shut down the entire global economy to fight it. Show me that episode, then you'll have some credence in terms of, of attacking the Trump administration for not being prepared. And uh, so then 60 Minutes went and showed episodes they've done on previous pandemics, uh, strains of the flu, H1N1, avian flu, from back in the day to uh, to undermine Navarro. They thought that's how some on the left received it. What they didn't realize, or apparently don't care, is they're sort of hoist by their own patar in going back to uh, meet Navarro's challenge. So, for example, they played this from Tony Fauci back in 2005, talking about uh, pandemics. Right now, and we all admit that, right now, if we had an explosion of an H5N1, we would not be prepared for that. We had an explosion of a uh, strain of influenza in 2005, Tony Fauci saying that we would not be prepared. So Tony Fauci is one of the constants over the last two decades at CDC. And the media is one of the constants over the last couple of decades with respect to discussions about pandemics. And there's been multiple presidents and Republicans and Democrats in Congress and Republican and Democrat leadership teams in Congress. And President Trump has been in office since January of 2017. And all of those, as, as Navarro said, all of those reports over the last two decades, yeah, okay. And nobody did anything about it. The task, I mean, as much as was required to prepare for something that was unforeseen, like this strain of a coronavirus. But it's all supposed to be on Trump's fault. It's all supposed to be laid at his doorstep because of February, because of one month. That's a tough sell. But that's what the D.C. press corps is trying to sell. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend John Hinderaker. He is the president of Center for the American uh, Center of the American Experiment and, of course, a regular contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you, Dan. So that's uh, from the weekend uh, through yesterday's uh, task force briefing. It's been um, all it's Trump's fault for the vi for the spread of the virus all the time from the press corps. Yeah, well, of course, this is all revisionist history. I mean, it's been said over and over, but I'll say it again. It was Trump who, who stopped all international travel from China at the end of January at a time when the Democrats were doing nothing but trying to impeach him. And they responded by saying it was racist and xenophobic and the press said it was an overreaction and, um, and, and, and it, you know, barely made the news. And thereafter, various actions were taken. 
but but all of this is revisionist. So so on, it was on February 24 when Nancy Pelosi appeared on local news in San Francisco, strolling down the street in Chinatown, surrounded by so-called community leaders and cameramen, you know, news crews on the street in Chinatown, urging everyone, come down to Chinatown. Business is slow. Don't worry about those rumors of a disease. Nobody is sick here. Come on down to Chinatown. That was on February 24th, Nancy Pelosi. So for them to now start pointing the finger at Trump and say he didn't do enough is ridiculous. In my opinion, he and the governors have done too much, but that's that's another story. Well, let's get to that other story because uh, you've written about it uh, over at powerlineblog.com and one of the the uh, forums that took that review took was looking at uh, five uh, five states to see what was predicted and what has come to pass. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've written numerous, numerous posts about this from a lot of perspectives, you know, relying on, on, on doctors, epidemiologists, others, you know, business people, all kinds of folks for information. I, I did that post looking at this IHME, uh, University of Washington model that a lot of people are referring to now, even though it's really terrible. And, and looking at how they, they claim that all of their projections assume social distancing, assume total shutdown. But, but I, I wrote, I don't care that can possibly be true because I looked at the five states of the upper Midwest, which are contiguous and culturally, uh, you know, geographically very similar to see what their projections were as of April 10th. So as of April 10th, they had Minnesota projected with 442 deaths, Wisconsin with 357. But Iowa, which has about half the population of Minnesota, they had projected with 743 deaths. Now, I figured that had to be because they didn't shut down Iowa. They did shut down Minnesota and Wisconsin. And then North Dakota and South Dakota, which had had virtually no you know, cases and only you know, a handful of deaths, literally. They had North Dakota projected with 369 deaths, South Dakota with 356 deaths. And it was just totally made up out of, out of thin air. They had these hypothetical curves of, of future fatalities that were not in any way based on uh, empirical data or on experience. Well, I wrote, I wrote a post about this on April uh, 11th or 12th, I forget which. And on April 13th, uh, the IHME people came out with their, you know, they revised their projections every few days. Well, guess what? They increased their projection for Minnesota from 442 to 656. And by the way, currently we have 70 deaths in Minnesota. The, you know, the infection is peaking. We have 70 deaths, not six or 700. The median age of the deceased is 88. And two-thirds of those deaths have occurred in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. They cut their projection for Wisconsin a little bit. They cut their projection for Iowa. But listen to this. After I wrote my post, maybe it's coincidence. I don't know. Pointing out that their projections for North Dakota and South Dakota were were ridiculous. They cut their projection of fatalities in North Dakota from 369 to 32. Okay, 369 to 32 between April 10 and April 13. I mean, in my opinion, anyone who pays attention to any of these models is crazy. Well, and uh, just to your point, and now they're, you know, with the 100 to 240,000, then to 80, then to 60, then now we're uh, at zero. Uh, IHME saying they're forecasting zero deaths in America in July and August assuming the appropriate measures are put in place to guard against the reintroduction 
mass screening, contact tracing, testing of all individuals entering the country, quarantine of people who test positive. And, of course, they're assuming that all of that's done flawlessly, too. But zero? I mean, to go from the numbers they're talking about to no one will have a COVID-19-related death in 60 days. Yeah, contact tracing. You know, I, I quoted an epidemiologist linked to a, 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 an interview with an epidemiologist talking about this, just, I think, yesterday. You could do contact tracing for sexually transmitted diseases. They did it for AIDS, right? Because people, you could reasonably expect people to remember those contacts, correct? Okay, try to do contact tracing, this epidemiologist uh, said, for a respiratory, an infectious yeah, respiratory right. disease. Who'd like, you breathe give on? me the names of all the people <laughs> you wrote on the subway in New York with. Right. I mean, contact tracing does not work. It's a, it's a wonderful theory, but to apply it to respiratory infections is just hopeless. Well, and, and also, too, um, you know, let's hold this until we come back. But just looking at the data from New York City, since that's the uh, epicenter of the, the worst outbreak in the country, it has some value in terms of trying to think about this reasonably and apply some sort of balancing test. Well, we're going to uh, try to apply that test with uh, John Hinderaker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, right after this. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. And uh, John, just going to New York City and looking at uh, the Uh, Figures from their Department of Public Health up uh, through yesterday, 6,182 deaths, Uh, only 128 of those 6,182 uh, are an individual with no underlying conditions. Zero deaths age group 0 to 17, only 26 of the 6,182 deaths age 18 to 44, only another 54, so a total of of 80 of the 6,182 deaths under the age of 65 in New York City. Doesn't that tell us something about um, what we could do to say younger and healthier, go back to work older uh, and and unhealthy or multiple underlying conditions, as well as, uh, you know, other vulnerable populations or vulnerable areas like nursing homes, uh, you know, continue to shelter in place? Couldn't we make those distinctions? Well, we certainly should. You know, here in Minnesota, ironically, they've shut down pretty much all economic activity and told everybody to stay home, but they haven't closed down the nursing homes. Well, guess where people are dying, you know? Right. If they closed down the nursing homes and let everything else go, we'd have fewer deaths. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, Dan, one of the things that I've done that, that has caused great ire among liberals is I have a simple chart that I have updated three or four times. And it shows fatalities in four categories. And one thing about this, Dan, is most of us don't think about death very often. You know, if you see a newspaper headline, 2,000 die, you think that's a huge number. Well, you know, about 8,000 people die every day in the United States. Yeah. There's yeah. 330 million of us, and we all die sometime, right? So, so I've got four, four columns. The first is the average number of deaths from the uh, seasonal flu that strikes every year. 
uh, per the World Health Organization. That's a big number, 468,500, okay? 468,000 is the average number of seasonal flu deaths. That's worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. Now, so far, uh, COVID-19, according to the World Health Organization, worldwide has killed about 120,000 people. So that's just a little over a quarter of an average flu season. And then the third, the third bar I've got in my bar chart shows the deaths in the United States uh, due to the annual seasonal flu just two years ago, 2017 to 2018, which wasn't even really a news story. That number uh, is 62,773. The total number of COVID-19 deaths in the United States to date is 21,942, about one-third as many as the flu deaths that we had just two years ago, now apparently forgotten by everybody. So, you know, you talk about this being a once-in-500-year event. I would say the media publicity, the hysteria, is a once-in-500-year event. The disease itself uh, has been, you know, and it's somewhat deadlier, you know, somewhat more, more often fatal, especially to older people than the typical seasonal flu. But it's very much in that category. Yeah. Well, and, and so this is uh, an important point, too, in, in the discussion that will happen now, but will certainly happen in advance of the next, uh, I don't know, terrible flu season or the next strain of a coronavirus. I don't know. But the question about the precedent that we've set now for shutting down our economy, shutting down our country in response to a somewhat contagious uh, virus and whether or not that will be the approach that will necessarily be taken because all the incentives, as we've seen both in terms of the response as well as, unfortunately, I would argue, the, the uh, popularity of the response in terms of the approval ratings of these governors that have acted in the most draconian fashion, that's going to be where all the incentives are. And though this will be the customary response, then we're going to build off this response for the next time. You know, Dan, the whole point of the shutdowns is to flatten the curve, right? We've all had that, heard that phrase a million times. And the idea is not that the, that the virus is going to mysteriously go away while we're sitting at home. You know, it's not going to do that. It'll still be there. The idea is to try to spread out the period of the epidemic uh, so that we don't all get sick at once and overload the hospitals. That's the whole theory. Right. You know, the idea is that the, uh, roughly the same number of people would eventually catch the disease and, and, and you know, to buy time percentage of them and, would, and, would die. And to buy but time. the hospitals won't be overloaded. And, and also to buy time for like an antiviral. To, to buy time yeah, for yeah, although a vaccine takes, you know, minimum a year, you know, absolute minimum uh, to test and deploy. So, you know, uh, it, nothing's going to happen between now and, you know, June or July or whatever by way of a vaccine. And there are some treatments around, although the left denounces them, you know, the chloroquine uh, cocktails and so on. But, Dan, here's my point. You know, the, what was feared was this crush of people needing to be hospital, hospitalized, especially in ICU uh, rooms. And, and so, you know, they brought the ship into the harbor in New York and they turned the Javits Center into emergency hospital and things like this were done all over the country. What's happened, according to the control uh, the Center for Disease Control, is around 125,000 hospitalizations. That, that's a nationwide and it's through April 4. They haven't updated for the next week yet. So it'll be somewhat more than that. But last year, same source, CDC, said that there were 490,000 
flu hospitalizations. So last year, flu, 490,000. This year, COVID-19, 125,000 through April 4. Two years ago, according to the CDC, there were 810,000 hospitalizations for that year's seasonal, seasonal flu virus. So my point, Dan, is if this is a precedent, we almost have to follow it next year and every year because every year uh, we have a seasonal flu virus that hospitalizes at least as many and, and probably several times as many as COVID-19. But it, it really it, it turns on what the media wants to do, right? If the media wants to if the media reported on the seasonal flu the way they've reported on COVID-19, even when there is an anti therapeutic, there's an antiviral treatment ultimately developed for it or some vaccine like the flu that's about 50 percent effective. If they wanted to focus on that, then they could whip people into the same frenzy that they've whipped people in here. At least a significant percentage of the American people seems to me this is the real problem and why it puts it puts people in a no win situation. Policymakers, because you have a majority of the populace that are sentimentalists and then they and, 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 and a majority of the politicians that are sentimentalists, too. They overreact, congratulate themselves for overreaction by saying they save lives. And and what are you supposed to say in, in the face of that? Yeah, right. And they move on. You know, the reality, Dan, is that what we're seeing is impeachment three. You know, um, there's a reason why the media has never before tried to make a big deal out of the seasonal flu and how many people die from it. There, there, there was no anti-Trump angle that they could yeah. really come up with. And the only reason that we're seeing the level of hysteria that we are, I, I think, at least in this country, is the media's desire to, to, to finally find something that will drive uh, Donald Trump out of office. He is John Hinderaker. He's the president of the Center of the American Experiment and a contributor to PowerlineBlog.com, which is must-read on a daily basis. John, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Dr. Bill Cassidy, who's not just a gastroenterologist, he's also a Republican U.S. Senator from Louisiana, writing in the Wall Street Journal. Society could reopen through the combination of personal responsibility to reduce coronavirus transmission and documenting who acquires naturally occurring immunity in the registry system currently used for immunizations. Meanwhile, entrepreneurs, scientists, civil servants will work toward effective vaccines, therapies and non-pharmaceutical measures. All of this will help us to strike the fair and proper balance between physical health and financial health. It's balance we're trying to strike lives versus lives. Um, and he, uh, of course, focuses on young people going back to worth as, as compared to those that are older, particularly those over the age of 70, uh, some of whom uh, are working these days, as we know, as we've discussed on this show. 
Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, talking about the reopening, asking questions that need to be answered by those making the plans, whether at the federal government level or the state government level. Will everyone have to wear a mask or only people who interact with the public? Will Americans of a certain age be advised to stay at home longer? Who will have to be tested and where? How will restaurants, takeout shops, and bars protect workers and customers? Where there'll be, uh, will there be new rules for public transportation, and particularly in high-density areas like the Northeast Corridor? All fair questions that should be gamed out. Um, but they're all missing something, I think, in our exuberance to reopen. The question that's not being asked is everybody incentivized to rejoin in the reopening. And that is the topic of a piece at TheHill.com by uh, our friends uh, Steve Moore and Phil Kirpin. Uh, the disincentives that are contained in the CARES Act for individuals, particularly as it pertains to enhanced unemployment benefits. For more on this, we're joined by Phil Kirpin, who's the president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, great to be with you. So this provision in the uh, $2 trillion uh, CARES Act that you're concerned about is, and you and uh, Steve Moore write about, is is unemployment insurance, not because you're stingy, but because you're concerned that it could produce an L-shaped uh, grow L-shaped growth out of the recession rather than the V-shaped growth, the quick rebound that we want. This is the unemployment program that Congress put in that runs through the end of July. And I certainly uh, hope and expect that our economy is going to be substantially opened well before then. And then the question is, uh, are businesses that need to hire workers, particularly you know, lower level and entry level workers to staff their businesses to get them up and running again, going to be able to find people to do those jobs when the unemployment benefits are the state standard benefits plus $600 per week, which is what has been set up under this bill through the end of July. And if you think about that number, $600 is a very large number uh, in the context of what uh, lower wage workers make, even up to middle wage workers. Uh, $600 a week, if you divide it by 40 hours, is $15 an hour. And so the federal benefit by itself, the plus-up federal benefit by itself is the equivalent of $15 an hour at full-time work. Uh, the state benefit varies somewhat by state. But that's typically another three or four hundred dollars. And so you have a circumstance where somebody who is working full time and making six hundred dollars a week stops working and now makes about nine hundred dollars a week. It's going to be very hard to convince that person to take another job uh, for six hundred dollars a week um, before that unemployment benefit runs out at the end of July. And uh, if you sort of look at the math. Basically, and again, it varies somewhat by state. I, I, Illinois is probably more generous than some. I haven't looked it up. But typically, uh, we're going to be looking at a circumstance where the sort of de facto wage that an employer has to pay in order for it to be more than the same worker could make on unemployment, it's going to have to be upwards of $22, $23 an hour. Uh, so it, it serves as sort of a backdoor minimum wage which might be good for workers that can keep getting this large uh, outsized unemployment benefit, or maybe if they're going to work, someone is, in, is induced to have to offer them a lot higher pay. But unfortunately, a lot of businesses are just not going to be able to afford that, especially when they're trying to get up off the mat after being shut down. And so what I'm really afraid of is that because of the way they structured this program, 
we're going to have a very, very high unemployment rate, but we're also going to have a labor shortage for the businesses that need to hire those positions to get up off of the mat and start operating again. And that's going to result, uh, I fear, in a much longer and more severe recession than we otherwise would have. Yeah, I want to pick up on that point uh, when we come back, uh, particularly with respect to the, say, 20 to 25 million Americans who have actually been laid off or have been separated from their job in some way, maybe voluntarily, as you're suggesting, because of the the benefits through the end of July. More with Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Phil Kirpin. He's the president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. And we're talking about the um, perverse incentives of certain components of the CARES Act, and most notably unemployment insurance. Because of the, let's say, you know, I know it's 17 million first-time unemployment uh, filers over the last three weeks, but that's a lag. It was probably, let's say it's 25 million. Most of those individuals, as has been reported in the discussion of what this, you know, what uh, w- uh, the fabric of society will look like coming out of this because it's the wealthier uh, uh, individual, the uh, uh, higher salary earners, the office worker, that uh, is able to work from home and not have his or her life nearly as disruptive as the hourly wage earner that works in a restaurant or a hotel uh, that have been particularly, or the the travel industry that have been particularly hard hit. And so here again, we go back to this and say, if you're being incentivized to stay uh, off the payroll for, off anybody's payroll for four months, uh, three months now, uh, to collect unemployment because you'll make more money and you'll just say, well, I'll figure out a job in a bar or restaurant, you know, after my unemployment runs out, then you're slowing the recovery. The nature of who's actually unemployed is an important factor here because of what you were talking about right before we broke, which was a potential labor shortage without them. Yeah, that's exactly right. The um, And I understand, I understand the impulse. I mean, I understand what Democrats were thinking, saying we're going to pay people even more than they were making when they were working to try to cushion the blow of, you know, this this very sharp and unexpected uh, contraction. And plus, uh, you know, you could make an argument, and I think that a lot of public health people have made this argument that, you know, in a sense, we sort of intentionally wanted to incentivize unemployment because you want to basically pay people to stay home and reduce the virus spread. And so there's a there's a policy logic behind doing it. When you want the economy contracting, shrinking, nobody outside of essential sectors working, when that's your desired outcome, it might make sense to have the very high sort of, uh, you know, artificially high federal plus up in unemployment benefits. The the problem is, uh, you know, what happens when you want the opposite? What happens when you want the economy to grow again, when you want people to work, when you want to have the sharpest recovery you can possibly have, which I hope we're going to have the all clear on you know, sometime soon in the next couple of weeks, a number of European countries are already opening up. And if you've got a policy that's designed to very strongly disincentivize work, to basically pay people more if they don't work than if they do, uh, that's going to be a major inhibitor. And uh, to your point, 
particularly for the job categories where we're seeing the most extreme job losses, people in the service industries and you know people who work in the retail and restaurant establishments that have been shut down by the lockdown orders, you know, those are likely to be people who sort of look at the basic math, and not all of them. Look, some people are going to say, I'll take less money to work. I want to go to work. I believe in work. You're certainly going to have some of that. Uh, but on the margin, you're going to have a lot of people who look at the numbers and say, you know, th there will be a job that I can go and find uh, at the end of, you know, I'll start looking in the last few weeks of July, and I'll find something to be ready for August. But in the meantime, I'm not going to take a pay cut to work when I can keep getting this extended. Although the, 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 the one thing, and I wonder how that this could address uh, your concerns somewhat, although it's really hard to, to exactly get your hands around it. So the uh, Payroll Protection Forgivable Loan Program certainly incentivizes employers to keep these employees on their payroll or to bring them back on their payroll. And then that gives uh, a little bit of uh, job security to that individual, even if, as you say, they're making a little bit less money in the short term by just getting their salary uh, that they were getting uh, prior to uh, prior to the closure. Uh, but then the flip side of that and, 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 and also, too, you know, depending on how long this goes and how many states, you know, what was a uh, laborer's market, say, for example, in the service industry, because there were so many, I'll just use Chicago as an example, so many restaurants, it's so highly competitive for service sector labor, restaurants and bars and hotels and, and everything associated with travel, entertainment, lodging, that, um, that you know, you if you got laid off from one job on Monday, you could uh, be, you could have probably three job offers from other restaurants or bars on Tuesday. Well, that may not be the case because there may be a lot fewer restaurants and bars that are reopening their doors than had their doors open previously. Well, I mean, that's sort of the question is, you know, how to what extent does, uh, you know, does this disincentive just result in, you know, businesses not being able to reopen, not being able to get off the floor and, you know, being on a much, much slower trajectory uh, for recovery? And, you know, we could have a situation where, um you know, you know, people get to the end of July and then they, they can't really find a job. And then uh, they, you know, their unemployment benefit drops down to a, uh, you know, to the regular state benefit or maybe. And this is what I really fear might happen is uh, maybe the politicians say we need to extend the federal program. Right. Democrats say it would be wrong. And then it ends up being a permanent thing where we just make non-work pay more than work. And, you know, uh, there was a uh, there was a floor debate in the Senate because when this when this bill came out, uh, Dan, the Republicans were like shocked to see it because they thought Democrats had said in their talking points, we're going to have, you know, for the crisis, we're going to make unemployment pay 100 percent of wages. And that was their talking point. And the bill came out and it paid as much as 200 percent of wages in some circumstances and it paid almost half of the uh, of all workers more than they on unemployment than they made uh, when they were working. And Republicans said there's a drafting error. You wrote this wrong. Uh, you know, we'd, let's fix it. Let's make it up to 100 percent, as you said you wanted. And the Democrats said, no, no, there's no drafting error. This is how we meant to do it. This is what we want. And in fact, uh, Ron Wyden, you know, all Democrats except Joe Manchin voted against an amendment to cap unemployment at 100 percent of qualified wages. So they, they, you know, all the other Democrats were explicitly on the record fine with unemployment paying more than work. And Ron Wyden actually said, this is something we've wanted to do for a long time. Yeah. And that, that, you know, if you've wanted to do it for a long time, I don't think it's something you necessarily want to end uh, when the emergency ends. And so you've got this, this, this very odd circumstance where one of the major political parties in this country now believes that it's appropriate and desirable to tell people, if you don't work, you're going to get paid more 
than if you work. And I think that, and, and the other aspect of this, Dan, in addition to the work disincentive, is there's a sort of basic fairness aspect of this. When you have so many people who are going to work at these essential jobs, people like you know the cashiers at grocery stores and you know and what have you, you know, and a lot of them are making $600 a week working. And you've got other people who got laid off from similar jobs who are now making $900 a week not working. Uh, you know, it, it, there seems to be something very wrong with that, uh, both morally and kind of as an economic incentive. And it doesn't even include the uh, proposals coming from the socialist backbenchers like Rashida Tlaib for uh, 1000 bucks a month in addition to all that for uh, a year after whenever they designate the virus, uh, uh, the viral outbreak has officially ended and all sorts of other other uh, sort of entitlement enhancements as well. So, well, I mean, they're, they're really seeing this as money. an opportunity. He is Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good one. Take care. Don't turn around. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, earlier in the show, talking to Victor Davis Hanson, mentioned some uh, positives that could come out of uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, thinking about uh, uh, mi- the preventing mission creep at places like the National Institute of Health. Uh, how should the FDA, how should the FDA process uh, new devices and drugs, safe and effective or just safe? What's the standard? And uh, regardless of what the standard is, is there a way to streamline the process so that the FDA doesn't become a bottleneck? Um, Right to try is a baby step in that direction, but uh, certainly there is more that should be considered. Uh, And then this piece from uh, Stanley Goldfarb, Dr. Goldfarb, former associate dean of curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. Med school needs an overhaul, rethinking the curriculum at med school. What has received less attention about uh, the reporting on medical professionals, particularly doctors, is that many doctors haven't been, what has received less, uh, less attention than the great work they're doing, is he, what he's referencing, is that many doctors haven't been adequately trained in medical school to deal with a situation like this. Most medical schools do not require students to do coursework on pandemic response or practical preparation for a widespread and sustained emergency. American medical training as a whole does not include a strong grounding in public health issues or disaster preparedness. Instead, two of the nine specific curricular requirements decreed by the AMA uh, focus on social issues in medicine, including diagnosing common societal problems, the impacts of disparities in health care, medically underserved populations in a diverse society. No mention of public health or epidemics. Uh, Dr. Goldfarb has the humility some Doctors don't, writing, physicians are highly educated, but doesn't mean they know everything, even things broadly related to the practice of medicine. It's been discouraging to see doctors on news programs struggle to explain the principles of drug testing, the nature of the scientific method, and the meaning, both positive and negative, of uncontrolled drug trials. A critical examination of undergraduate medical education will be among the many reassessments the country has to make in the wake of the crisis. Many schools don't require students to do formal training in emergency medicine. And he's obviously arguing they should. 
And above all, the medical profession should abandon the fantasy that physicians can be trained to solve the problems of poverty, food insecurity, racism. They have no clinical tools with which to address these issues. It should take into account uh, the reforms to come, should take into account the essential role physicians must play in a public health crisis and produce physicians prepared to help battle deadly pandemic diseases like COVID-19 and also understand the limitations. Understand the limitations, too. Really good piece, thoughtful piece by Dr. Goldfarb. Hopefully that will be part of the conversation because up until his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, I hadn't heard much on the topic. Uh, Speaking of uh, political correctness and uh, its uh, virulent uh, virulence in in every space it infects, including med schools, check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. This is the Prager Corolla documentary about protecting free minds and free speech in our free society. No Safe Space is available for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The IMHE model that uh, has uh, received uh, so much attention and been uh, profiled by uh, Drs. Burks and Fauci the Washington Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, their model of infections and COVID-19-related deaths. A paper by statisticians from CTDS, Center for Translational Data Science, Northwestern University, and the University of Texas, finds in excess of 70% of U.S. states had actual death rates falling outside the 95% prediction interval for that state, assessing the model. 70%, more than two-thirds of U.S. states had actual death rates falling outside the 95% prediction interval. Then this, the ability of the model to make accurate predictions decreases with increasing amounts of data. Now IHME is forecasting U.S. deaths for July and August, zero. Now they're going all the way the other way from the IHME. Our forecast for, of zero deaths in July and August assume that appropriate measures are put in place to guard against the reintroduction of COVID-19 from another state or country. These measures may include mass screening, may, may include mass screening, contract tracing, testing of all individuals entering the country, quarantine of people who test positive. Well, that's a whole set of assumptions. Uh, another assumption implicit that uh, those measures are impl- implemented flawlessly. It would be you know, borderline comical if life and death decisions weren't being predicated on these sorts of models and their predictions. That was the Imperial College London model that was revised down to fewer than 20,000. And uh, speaking of that, I mean, again, just in terms of any track record that may be of interest to people with respect to some of these modelers who were given expert status, whose numbers, and, and I'm not saying that they were saying that these numbers aren't predicated on certain assumptions that if those assumptions don't come to fruition, radically alter the accuracy of the models. I'm saying the press coverage has been awful. Neil Ferguson, who's an epidemiologist and professor of mathematical biology, 
the, the uh, gold standard of disease modeling, according to some. Looking back, ex-newspaperman Bill Steigerwald, who actually did some of the assessment of track record, Ferguson has a record of making worst-case predictions about the threat of new viruses. For example, in 2005, about the avian flu death toll, this is from The Guardian. Neil Ferguson, professor of mathematical biology at Imperial College of London, told Guardian Unlimited that up to 200 million people could be killed by the avian flu. Quoting him, around 40 million people died in 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. There are six times more people on the planet, so you could scale it up to around 200 million people probably. A Department of Health contingency plan states any states uh, anywhere that there could be between um, uh, 21,500 and 709,000 deaths in Britain. The bird flu's death toll from 2003 to 2020 is 455. 21,5 to 700,000 in Britain, 200 million people worldwide. In Britain, the death toll over the last 17 years is 455. The point is the accuracy of the models in real time that are, that policymakers are making decisions predicated upon. And there just is not you give whatever deference you want to give to the modelers and their assumptions. I'll give all of the qualifiers and caveats that you want. The reporting on this is awful. Anything with a number, the press corps turns and just repeats as received wisdom that was handed to them on tablets. And so perhaps we're going to find after the fact that some horrific decisions were made, horrific decisions that cost lives. For more on this whole topic, Harry, we're pleased to be joined by Peter Mollers, Ph.D., Vice Dean for Research at Ohio State College of Medicine, Director of the Dorothy M. Davis Heart and Lung Research Center. And uh, he's got some good news about uh, something going on at Ohio State that the FDA approved. Peter Muller, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Before we get to uh, the good news about uh, what your colleagues at Ohio State have uh, developed uh, with respect to testing, I mean, do, do you have any um, comments you'd like to make about the modeling and the um, the modeling being used as these basis for these decisions that we've made? Yeah, so I think for a lot of the scientists and researchers that, you know, we're kind of living in the real world of what's happening day to day and, you know, seeing people on the front lines that are hour by hour and minute by minute are, you know, are worried, are concerned. And so while I know that there are a lot of models out there, a lot of us, and, and I can speak for my colleagues here in Columbus as well as probably in Chicago, that we're trying to work on solutions. And so while I know there's a lot of hypotheticals out there and models are great, but models are as, as good as the data that are in them, we really don't have time to, to spend a lot of time on that because we're focused on coming up with solutions and coming up with whether there are new ways to test or new therapies or new drugs, um, we just need to get some answers. There was this study out of, now, again, this is out of Wuhan, China, uh, but a study out on Friday that looked at the symptoms of uh, a couple of hundred COVID-19 patients, finding nearly half with severe cases of the virus had neurological issues, uh, dizziness, headaches, impaired consciousness. Is that uh, an area of research that uh, you or your colleagues have delved into? And, and if that's true or if you've seen similar symptoms, does that tell us anything about the nature of it? Yeah, I think what we're seeing, and again, one of the things that America is very good at is we've got some amazing researchers and we've got great physicians. And so, for example, right now at Ohio State, we have about 80 different active research studies focused on COVID-19. And that's looking at everything from the impact of the virus on the lungs, the impact of the virus on the heart, 
and like you mentioned a little bit before, Dan, what's happening in the brain. And what we're seeing is that depending on what some of the other phenotypes or the other sort of problems that someone might have, and that might be diabetes, it might be they have, they might have obesity, that might be their age, um, we're seeing a little bit different manifestation in terms of the symptoms. What we're trying to figure out is, is that when a virus interacts with someone else, a, a human's um, body, what are the things that happens not only in terms of their genetics, but what happens in terms of what we call the epigenetics or sort of the frosting on the top of the genes that might change that, that might lead not only to a different um, downstream clinical phenotype, but, but also may lead to a different way to treat those people. So I will tell you whether it's in, again, Columbus or Chicago or San Francisco or New York, there are a lot of researchers today that are working 18 hours a day to, to, to really get solutions so we can get back to normal. You mentioned uh, therapeutics, and I wonder if uh, you and your colleagues are involved in any clinical trials for any of, uh, any of the potential antivirals that have been widely discussed from remdesivir to uh, the uh, convalescent plasma. Yeah, we are. And again, it's, it's something that we've, we've really been active in and want to make sure that that you know, there's a lot of people right now talking about what to do, that we want to be coming up with ways to, to fix this, right? And, and so whether that's some of the, the work that, that everyone has heard on about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin or some of the other um, things that, that look at cytokines or um, even some, some new drugs that we're taking on that, that might be used for another treatment right now, whether it's a cancer treatment or a cardiovascular treatment and be able to repurpose it for COVID, again, lots and lots of trials that are happening today. Do, do you have any time horizon on the completion of some of those trials? So they're very active. And in fact, here at Ohio State, we started doing some of this work on convalescent plasma. And as your, as your, um, your listeners probably know very well, this is the idea where we take the plasma from someone who has gone through the disease and has come out in a, in a very good state and take some of the antibodies that are in their blood and then put them back into someone that, that might have a a more severe outcome, and and we're starting to see results from that um, in real time. And we're we're one of many many groups across the country that are they're looking at this. The other thing that I I think that is important for your listeners to understand is is coming up with ways that that we're able to understand the spread of disease across larger populations, and and working on tests that are going to allow us to be able to look for these antibodies, these neutral neutralizing antibodies against the virus. With respect to perhaps other colleagues like uh, those researchers at uh, Pittsburgh that have a vaccine under development that's gotten some attention, are you in consultation uh, and collaboration with researchers doing some of the same things you're doing, maybe uh, taking some different angles of incidence into the whole area of antivirals as well as a possible vaccine? You know, it doesn't matter what Big Ten group you're for. You're for Even or, Michigan? You know, what, well, with the exception of maybe Michigan. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. You know, there's a lot of things that that um, while we may root for different football teams, um, that 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 those that those colors go away when you start to think about you know what what are we what's being impacted and you know the numbers in Illinois are what around 800 um, that 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 you know you stop caring a little bit as much about you know loyalties and and really it's been really impressive about how scientists and physicians have been sharing information. He is Peter Muller, his PhD, he's the Vice Dean for Research at Ohio State College of Medicine and Director of the Dorothy M. Davis Heart and Lung Research Institute. Uh, Peter Muller, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No matter where you go, there will always be a place. 
The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, earlier in the show, I took uh, President Trump to task for uh, his Thomas Hobbes impersonation, declaring himself the, uh, the one and only sovereign in the country. Uh, but uh, there were other moments in his briefing on, on uh, Monday evening that are worth noting. Uh, we talked uh, on uh, Monday night show about this uh, fire Fauci faint from the left. And uh, thankfully, as expected, neither President Trump nor Tony Fauci took it. And it was important what Tony Fauci had to say to the press corps, uh, doing a little bit of his own scolding for a change. You know, I, to be honest with you, I don't even remember what the date was. But I can just tell you the first and only time that I went in and said we should do mitigation strongly, the response was, yes, we'll do it. And what did he do? Is that the travel restrictions? No. Uh, the travel restriction is separate. That was whether or not we wanted to go into a mitigation stage of 15 days of mitigation. The travel was another recommendation. When we went in and said we probably should be doing that, and the answer was yes. And then another time was we should do it with Europe. And the answer was yes. And the next time we should do it with the U.K. And the answer was yes. So uh, recommendations were made by Fauci and Burks, and recommendations were taken by Trump. So I, I just want to understand something. Um, so Tony Fauci is the Oracle of Delphi, according to the press corps. And Trump is responsible for spreading the virus. And there's no daylight between them. I'm going to need somebody with a journalism degree to help me understand that logical flow. This is uh, an, an omniscient oracle. This is a buffoon who uh, uh, bungled the response and cost uh, tens of thousands of lives and so on and so forth. And there's no separation between the two of them in terms of recommendations taken under advisement and recommendations put into practice. Boy, I guess I just don't have the um, mental capacity of the D.C. press corps. You know, the likes of Paula Reed at CBS News. What is the deal there? It, it, it seems like a camera time for members of the D.C. press corps is like water to gremlins. It replicates them. I haven't even paid any attention to this Paula Reed woman until yesterday. I would Jim Acosta it was unavailable. Are you doing this voluntarily or did no, the president No, I'm doing it. I, everything I do is voluntarily. Please don't even imply that. Like Tony Fauci is a hostage. You know, Jared Kushner is outside Tony Fauci's house right now and he's going to go inside and take his wife if Tony Fauci doesn't read the script that President Trump presented him. Are you doing it voluntarily? But that's about as close as you'll get to criticism of Fauci, or even questioning a Fauci, forget criticism, questioning, questioning his performance. And as I remarked earlier in the show, uh, I think that was our conversation with John Hinderaker from Powerline Blog, Tony Fauci is the constant at CDC writing point on infectious disease and by extension pandemics and pandemic preparedness for decades. This president's been there for three years. And there's no question about no questions to Fauci about uh, all that we have known about pandemics, pandemic preparedness, what we need to do versus what we did or didn't do over successive presidential administrations and Congresses. No questions from the topic. 
I'm not t- taking Tony Fauci to task because I don't get into the metaphysical. I don't I don't do the press DC press corps uh, uh, 2020 uh, metaphysics asking questions like if you knew something you didn't know, should you have acted differently? <laughs> Answer that question. Oh, and I've got a follow up. If things were different, is it the case that they would no longer be the same? This is what you're getting as anybody who's watched these briefings has seen. So I'm not taking Fauci to task per se, but, I mean, he's the expert in the room. Listen to the expert. Listen to the expert. You're not interested in what the expert has said or done for the last few decades, whether or not uh, he actually has uh, had particular insights uh, in terms of uh, preparation and prevention. And I'm not saying he his record is uh, not generally good. There certainly have been blind spots. Of course there have been. Because, as Peter Navarro said on 60 Minutes, not only is it hard to sell a black swan, it's hard to predict one and the form it will take. But that's the standard that Trump is being held to, the non-expert. Isn't that curious? So I'll tell you what, I don't blame him when he uh, <laughs> puts it between the eyes of the D.C. press corps with that uh, little video montage he put together. You know, rather than going back and forth, and things getting lost in translation. Here, my main detractors, in their own words, not taken out of context. Is there a bigger institutional opponent of the president than the New York Times? So when their point person on the White House, Maggie Haberman, has this to say in an interview about the president's decision to shut off Chinese travel to the United States, it's worth noting, in video, as there were more cases and it was clear that it was spreading out of China where it originated. The president took this move that he was widely criticized for by Democrats and even some Republicans at the time, which was he halted a number of flights from China into the U.S. The idea was to halt the spread of the disease, keep transmissions to a minimum. He was accused of xenophobia. He was accused of making a racist move. At the end of the day, it was probably effective because it did actually take a pretty aggressive measure against the spread of the virus. I like it when Maggie Haberman says it even more than when I like uh, than I like it when Trump says it. You know, it has more power coming from her. What do you say to that? All her colleagues. The same thing with politicians hearing from in this order, Governors Cuomo, Newsom, DeSantis, Murphy, Ducey, Hogan. Three Democrats and one Republican detractor. That would be Hogan at the end. Here's what they uh, had to say, the clips that were played as part of that video. His team is on it. They've been responsive late at night, early in the morning. uh, And they've uh, thus far been doing everything that they can do. And I want to say thank you. And I want to say that I appreciate it. He returns calls. He reaches out. Uh, he's been proactive. Uh, we got that mercy ship down here in Los Angeles. That was directly because he sent it down here. 2,000 uh, medical uh, units came to the state of California, these FMS, these, these field medical stations. Uh, and that's been very, very helpful. The president has been uh, uh, outstanding uh, through all this. The vice president's been outstanding. Members of the coronavirus task force, very responsive. We had asked if we could have, New Jersey could have access to a piece of the 
beds that are on the USNS Comfort. And the president came back, called me a short few minutes before I walked in here to say, indeed, they would grant that to New Jersey. So that's a big step for us. In addition to all the other capacity, that news is literally hot off the press. And I thank the president and vice president who are on the call together. President Trump approved Arizona's request for a presidential major disaster declaration. I want to thank the president for a quick turnaround. We requested this on a Wednesday, and we had approval by Saturday morning. And we are grateful to the administration for their continued support and responsiveness. Well, first of all, I want to uh, thank uh, the, the, the president and the vice president for doing a really good job of communicating with all the governors. I think uh, from now on, when he gets questions from the press corps, President Trump should just have clips that they're ready to play. Have somebody else respond to these people. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Over the weekend, the New York Times uh, tweeted this about uh, Tara Reid. This is the former Biden staffer that's accused him of uh, sexual assault and uh, now has filed a police report to that effect. Now, this dates back to the 90s, but nonetheless, New York Times reporting or tweeting, excuse me, and reporting. No other allegation about sexual assault surfaced in the course of our reporting, nor did any former Biden staff corroborate Reid's allegation. We found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. They deleted that tweet. Why? One, probably because the idea that no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden other than the misconduct I'm just about to describe hugs, kisses and touching women said made them uncomfortable. That may not be sexual assault of the the sort that Tara Reid is alleging, but it is a pattern that is, uh, I think, fairly described as misconduct when it's unwanted. And there are repeated instances of it. But OK, but then there's the issue of Reid's allegation and the other perhaps even more uh, salient explanation for the deleting of that tweet is this, the varying standards The New York Times has applied to reporting. Uh, an accusation of this sort. And so uh, Ben Smith interviewed uh, Dean Beckett, the executive editor of The Times, about the addition, about the decision, excuse me, to wait and not to publish Tara Reid's allegations when they first surfaced uh, on March 25th. Took them um, uh, three weeks. Why not cover then as breaking news? Ben Smith asked his boss. The interview, but they're fair questions, and some of the answers are really, really going to be something when you hear them. If you haven't read the interview already, why not cover it then as breaking news when she made the allegations on March 25th? Lots of people covered it as breaking news at the time. I just thought that nobody other than the Intercept was actually doing the reporting to help people figure out what to make of it. I thought what the New York Times could do and bring uh, uh, the story to and bring to the story was the expertise we had developed over doing more than a dozen of these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know what that means. Um, I, he goes on to say, mainly I thought what the New York Times could offer and should try to offer was the reporting to help people understand what to make of a very fairly serious allegation against the guy who'd been VP of the United States and was knocking on the door being his party's nominee. So they they said, we didn't cover it as breaking news because we were going to add more context to it. That's his cover story for waiting three weeks. Um, He has asked um, uh, this question by Ben Smith. This is where it starts to get interesting. Ben Smith's question. I've been looking at the Times coverage of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I want to focus particularly on the Julie Swetnick allegations. She was the one who was represented by Michael Avenatti. Oh, remember Michael Avenatti? Yeah, he's out of prison now because of uh, COVID-19 times. Out of prison for the moment. But anyway, back to Ben Smith. She was the one who was represented by Michael Avenatti and who suggested that Kavanaugh had been involved in frat house rapes and then appeared to walk back elements of her allegations. The Times wrote that story the same day she made the allegation noting that, quote, none of Ms. Swetnick's claims could be independently corroborated, unquote. Why was Kavanaugh treated differently? That's a good question by Ben Smith. Here's Dean Beckett's response. Kavanaugh was already in a public forum in a large way. Kavanaugh's status as a Supreme Court justice was in question because of a very serious allegation. And when I say in a public way, I don't mean in the, the public way of terror reads. If you ask the average person in America, they didn't know about the Tara Reid case. So I thought in that case, if the New York Times was going to introduce this to readers, we needed to introduce it with some reporting and perspective. Kavanaugh was in a very different situation. It was a live, ongoing story that had become the political biggest political story in the country. It was just a different news judgment moment. Really? Kavanaugh was already in a public form in a large way. You just mentioned in the previous Q&A I referenced the former vice president of the United States knocking on the door of being the party's nominee. Is that in the public forum in a large way? I bet Bernie Sanders would say so. Kavanaugh is in a very different situation. Uncorroborated claims of Julie Sonic reported it anyway. Breaking news. And you, you in the tweet I just referenced that had been deleted, you reference the previous allegations against Joe Biden, which have all could have which could have all been contextual information for the reader. <laughs> Mm. This quick Q&A. Do you think in your heart you're reluctant to promote a story that would hurt Joe Biden and get Donald Trump reelected? Dean Beckett, I can't make that calculation. I won't. I won't let my heart or my I won't let my head or my heart go there. Oh, goodness. I think once you start making those kinds of calculations, you're not a journalist anymore. You're some sort of political actor. Hey, Dean, I got news for you. You're already a political actor. This is Dan Proffitt. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, I want to get to uh, a review of the 50 laboratories of democracy and uh, the labs within the labs. Do a little bit of uh, state of play at the state and local level as uh, there are various plans uh, beginning to be afoot towards reopening. Larry Kudlow is on with Stu Varney and Fox Business this morning talking about uh, the president's plans and 
an announcement that uh, is going to be forthcoming in the next day or two. Well, look, uh, Stu, I, the quote you gave the president talking about guidelines to give to the states and so forth, you know, I, I can't improve upon that. I do think it's safe to say that uh, in the next few days, he will be making some very important announcements regarding those guidelines. Look, the key point here, really, number one, safety, the health and safety of the American people. Uh, number two, the well-being of the American people. Uh, we want to get folks back to work. You know, folks, ordinary men and women, uh, blue-collar workers, families, small businesses, we want to do it as quickly as possible. It has to be safe. It has to be driven by the data uh, from our key health specialists. But the president, I think, is moving towards some very important announcements in the next day or two. Okay. I will look forward to those. Uh, ostensibly, the plan, the vision, the guidelines for beginning to reopen the economy, perhaps with specific suggestions on a rank order prioritization of who should open or which cohorts should be freed uh, in a phased in a phased in way, uh, all of that uh, under debate uh, both at the federal level and around the states. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, New York governor, hosting a confab uh, conference call yesterday with other uh, northeastern mayor, uh, excuse me, governors. They're putting together a working group to come up with their own plan, uh, collaborating, ostensibly sharing resources, come up with their own plan for reopening, just as governors out west are doing. And just as Greg Abbott is doing by himself in Texas. Uh, we've been talking today about the fact that New York believes we have reached a plateau in the increase of number of cases. They're not going down, but uh, they're not going up at the same rate. And we believe it's a quote unquote plateau. Uh, and that is uh, relatively good news in a world of bad options. Uh, and we should start looking forward to reopening, quote-unquote, but reopening with a plan and a smart plan, because if you do it wrong, it can backfire, and we've seen that in other places on the globe. So everyone is very anxious to get out of the house, get back to work, get the economy moving. Uh, everyone agrees with that. What the art form is going to be here is doing that smartly and doing that productively, yeah, thanks for that. I, I mean, Andrew Cuomo has given such high marks for communication. He just sort of describes pedestrian things, but in a methodical way. So it sounds like he's got command of the situation. We need to get together and do things smartly and productively. Yeah, that's always the best course of action. I don't know what grand insight that uh, that is. Tell me some details or at least uh, let me know when you're going to have some details and then I'll pay attention. Doing things smartly and productively is always the best way to do them. I agree. I can see the point. That's genius, according to the D.C. press corps. Anyway, uh, one of the things I'd like to hear in the plans, whether at the state level or the federal level, the guidelines, is uh, re-liberalizing, small l, in the classical sense, re-liberalizing American society. How about some guidelines to local units of government and state governments to uh, shutter the snitch lines? Like uh, the state of Kentucky, the lies of others, Stasi, rat your neighbor outline. Not just the state of Kentucky, where I live in Cook County and Chicago, Illinois. The Forest Preserve posted signs uh, on Forest Preserve property with a hotline 
you see somebody, you know, not in the forest preserve or shouldn't be or not social distancing, rat them out so we can find them. New York City, what are the fines for uh, not being six feet apart or a thousand bucks? Laredo, Texas, the fines for not wearing a mask th- up to a thousand bucks. Riverside County, uh, California, Rivco Mobile. That's an app where people who come across non-essential businesses still in operation. And boy, don't you love that the government can tell you who's an essential and non-essential business, who's a non-essential and essential employee, government. That doesn't that doesn't have any chilling. It doesn't uh, chill anybody. It should. Uh, Rivco Mobile is an app that uh, allows people to uh, rat out people they see operating, quote-unquote, non-essential businesses, non-essential people operating non-essential businesses, not complying with health orders, and so forth. And, of course, we've seen uh, in the last week and heard about the cases of the the father in Massachusetts being taken away in cuffs for playing t-ball with his daughter. And uh, over the weekend, the awful scene as I think we mentioned in yesterday's show, on a Philadelphia bus where a man is dragged off by some 8 to 10 Philadelphia police officers after some public health official gets on the bus because of this controversy that had been stirred up. The gentleman wasn't wearing a mask on the bus. The guidelines, the city's guidelines, guidelines, wear a mask. Not requirement. Nonetheless, he was dragged off a city bus. Uh, mentioned it before, this is still America, and we want it to still be America post-virus, don't we? And if I could paraphrase Milton Friedman, the concern is that there's uh, nothing so permanent as a temporary expansion of state power. And a little walk through history, even our own in the West, underscores this point. So we should be very careful about the liberties we're allowing to be infringed upon in the short term. The restraints on individual rights that have been applied in the short term to make sure they dissipate quickly. And frankly, we should take as instructive these moments uh, that have left us aghast. Where you have seen uh, authoritarians in the in the offing, take advantage of this opportunity to to to, to fine people sitting in their car to, in a parking lot attending a church service, or taking a, a father away from his daughter in cuffs for playing t-ball, or dragging that man off that bus in Philadelphia. Not good. Damn prop. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I've been meaning to get this to this little lesson in Economics 101 for uh, some time, but let's get to it now because it's across the board. State Attorney General's Republican, uh, State Attorney's General, excuse me, uh, Republican Democrat. Uh, you've heard from Bill Barr, Department of Justice, about price gouging, price gouging, price gouging. Let's go after the uh, 
the kid trying to corner the market in a particular area with hand sanitizer or charging more than we say should be charged for all kinds of products that uh, are in desperate need right now or, or were before the crush of the infections and hospitalizations over the last uh, week to 10 days, right? Price gouging. And you've heard me say, uh, say on the show before, there's no such thing. But that uh, doesn't mean that New York City hasn't received a thousand complaints and issued more than 500 violations, totaling 300 grand for price gouging on COVID-19 related supplies like hand sanitizer and face face masks and disinfectant wipes since March 5th. That's according to New York Times or New York Post. Excuse me. Um, What about nurses salaries? Great uh, details provided to us by Mark Perry, our friend over at uh, the Carpe Diem blog that he uh, manages for the American Enterprise Institute. Remember, uh, we heard this uh, when there was the belief that uh, New York City and New York State was going to have a nursing shortage in particular. You can stand up all those beds at the Javits Center, but we need uh, medical professionals to man them. And uh, this is no uh, no criticism of nurses, but uh, we see the nurse.org was reporting seeing uh, pay rates of $10,000 a week plus quarantine, quarantine pay, free hotel rooms, including at the Four Seasons, free rental cars, free airfare, discounts and offers. Businesses offering, offering incentives not only to travel uh, for nurses, uh, uh, free uh, free shoes, Starbucks coffee, discounts on scrubs, so on and so forth. Well, if you are outraged over, say, a 500% increase in the cost of hand sanitizer, why aren't you outraged in a 500 increase in the cost of labor, meaning the nurse? Because we have to have nurses to treat the infected, to treat the ill. We have to have them. This is a COVID-19 related shortage. Medical professionals, nurses, they normally make uh, two grand a week. Now they're making 10. Where are the complaints? Where are nurses being prosecuted for price gouging? Or is this what the market will bear? Supply versus demand. Hmm. Nurses are critical to the pandemic. Like hand sanitizers and face masks and disinfectant wipes. That's what we're told they're critical. So why do goods, the sale of goods, uh, differ from the sale of labor when it comes to price gouging laws? You think that would make the crisis better or worse if you apply price gouging laws to nurses? and the uh, cost of their their expertise, their labor. Or, and if you say it wouldn't make it better, then are we making it better by applying it to those other resources? Hmm. Food for thought. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do again tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.